Hey, hey, welcome to part two of the Wordsmith Workbook Walkthrough. This is part two of a three-part little mini-series, sort of a free course I'm offering here through the podcast, just to help you um, go through the free workbook that you are welcome to download that will ultimately just help you not just learn how to pick the best editor for you, but also how to vet people and their professionalism, like what to look out for to make sure that you're legally protected as much as financially protected. There are definitely some key things that happen in between the lines, pun and completely intended. <laughs> and um, I want to make sure that we go over as much as possible. And that is why this is broken down into three huge parts to really, really get to the nitty gritty. If you have not already downloaded the workbook, I'm also going to probably guess you haven't listened to the first episode of this uh, mini-series. So please do yourself a favor and go back and listen to part one, because that's going to start with part one, page one of the workbook. Be sure to download it and be sure to share it with your friends and anybody in your writing community who is definitely looking for an editor or will soon be needing one. This is a fantastic free resource for you and for anybody who could really, really use it. And let's go ahead and dive back in. You're listening to The Writer's Workshop, a weekly podcast about writing, publishing, and the art of storytelling. I'm Nikki Aubrakit, book editor, writer, and cultural anthropologist. Now we're on to the third worksheet, the Q&A, questions to ask your potential editor. This is just a brief list of questions to include in your consultation that you should definitely have. And you can absolutely ask more. Please do not limit yourself to just these questions. And please don't feel like you have to ask them exactly like this. These are just to inspire you to ask certain things to get certain pieces of information. Number one, what inspired you to become an editor? This again goes back to that question of, is their focus more on their passion and your goals than the money? If their answer is very logistic, typically that indicates their focus probably is on the money. If their answer comes from a very real place, very personal place, like mine always does, you should be very well assured that they're going to do a very good job working with you and on your book because it matters to them. It means something to them. So that's just what this number one question does. You know, what inspired you to become an editor? Some people say like, well, the money and the, be able to, the ability to work from home. I mean, yeah, the ability to work from home and make unlimited amounts of money also was part of why I decided to just claim it for myself. But if you're looking at like a pie chart, that's like maybe a tiny, tiny little sliver of the pie. The rest of the pie is a giant Pac-Man sized <laughs> graphic of it's just who I am. That is such a good thing to see in editors when you're interviewing them. Number two, how did you decide on your editing style? Because every editor is going to be a bit different. I am developmental. 
there are editors who only do copy editing. There are editors who only do line editing. They just prefer it that way. I initially like refreshed my editing skills with the course I took, um, The Art of Proofreading, which is fantastic. Just really great refresher course. And thought maybe I would just go into proofreading. But I realized that my focus, like as an anthropologist, my focus has always been on storytelling, always been on folklore and spirituality. I couldn't resist the developmental side. And I, I noticed that as I was looking at proposals, as I was looking at manuscripts and, and inquiries, stuff like that, that I kept veering into this other type of editing. So I did more research on like, what is it that's happening to me? And I realized it's called developmental. It's actually, it's been my style since I've been writing in grade school. Like when I edited my own papers and then went to journalism as a teenager and got published and was editing for that as well. Always developmental. I just didn't have a name for it. So there's my answer. How did you decide on your editing style? I just figured out what the name was for what I've been doing for years. <laughs> um, do I copy edit? Absolutely. Do I proofread? Absolutely. I include that in my editing packages. I do not line edit. That is an expertise that I am way, ha way happier referring to somebody else. And I do actually personally know some line editors who do amazing jobs and they are genre specific. So I will always only refer those who fit your genre. I, and also fresh eyes just do a, a better job. So I prefer to have that gap between. So when it comes back to me for the copy edit, I can look at it with fresh eyes. And that, and that there's my answer for number two. Listen to, to their response, you know, see again, there are ways to figure out what's their motivation. Is it money or is it passion? How did you decide on your editing style? If the answer is like, well, I took this proofreading course and it was an easy way to just get up and running and get making that money. While it is true, um, I have concerns. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, all right. Number three, what is your typical timeline for a manuscript? They should have one. If they don't, that's more of a flag to the orga organizational pattern than it is, you know, whether they're a scammer or not. But they should have a general answer and then let you know that like they'll have a more specific answer after they read your manuscript. Now, let's say you ask this and they're like, well, I won't know until I read your book. That's not a great answer either. My answer is always, and I'm going to tell you right now, what is my typical timeline for a manuscript? Regardless of the length, typically it's about four months and I stick to that schedule. Typically, it's four months. And I'll break it down for you what those four months look like. Um, I even just just yesterday contacted one of my authors who's going to be publishing in November. Super excited. We're coming into September. I let her know, hey, okay, here's my goal for what I'm working on by the beginning of September. And now here's what you're going to do for September. And here's what October and November looks like. We already talked about it, but I just gave her a refresher. That's the kind of response I mean. Like they should know like, hey, typically it takes me about four months working with you. And then I will have a much more detailed timeline for you after I read it. If they say, well, I don't know until I read it, <laughs> again, organizational issues. Um, if they don't have an answer at all, period, just, I don't know. Ooh, okay. Um, questions about how you run your business. And this is just me being a little hard on professionals, but... I'm being hard on professionals because I'm trying to protect you. I like, I really want to help you protect you. Number three, are you fluent in any other languages? This is not necessary at all. 
But if your book involves snippets, like maybe you have bilingual characters, maybe you have bilingual terminology happening, fluency is just very useful. Uh, working with me, I'm going to tell you that I am conversationally fluent in French and Spanish. I have studied and can pretty much read, maybe write Kine Greek, which is a very specific, <laughs> very specific type of Greek, ancient Greek. I can listen to and somewhat understand basic Bollywood Hindi. <laughs> I know some restaurant conversational Chinese. Uh, I think it's primarily Mandarin. I haven't gotten to uh, Cantonese yet, but, you know, it's, it's an interest. You know, but when it comes to, <laughs> I mention all these things because, like, let's say, for example, maybe you're doing, like, the next Percy Jackson. I do have some familiarity with Greek. Some familiarity. So I will tell you that, like, I'm not an expert, but I can identify the symbols, the lexicon, and have a basic understanding and kind of cross-reference that with you. Um, but I'll also, like, research it, too, to help you out. Now, if you have a bilingual character who's speaking Spanish or French or something like that, yeah, no, no problem. I'm not going to want to edit a book that's entirely in French, I'm going to be honest, or entirely in Spanish. But I am going to let you know that, hey, I'm familiar with these enough to help you out when those snippets happen, to, you know, to maintain accuracy. Now, even if I am not going to want to edit full novellas or whatever in Spanish or French, I can still identify punctuation marks. Um, French has a unique set of punctuation marks when it comes to spelling their words. So does Spanish. Things like that. It's, it's always good to know. It's okay if, though, if the editor is like, no, English is my primary language. Or, you know, if your book is in a primary language other than English, you want to make sure that the editor, that's, you really want to work with someone who that's their native language or it's close to native. Now, I do have an optional in here. Are you familiar with British standards slash American standard requirements? This really only applies if you are looking to get an editor across the pond. So let's say you're somebody from the United Kingdom or you're somebody from Australia or even Canada, because I think they still go off the British standard. Um, if you're talking to an American editor, like let's say you're talking to me, my answer is actually going to be yes, I am very familiar with British standard and I am confident and comfortable in editing to the like Oxford uh, dictionary standards or, you know, I know British spell. And actually sometimes uh, on my own personal writing, sometimes I catch myself getting confused between the two because I grew up reading a lot of British standard literature. So weird how that happened, but it did. Now, let's say you're an American and you're talking to a British standard-based editor, so from the UK or Australia or Canada. Um, they best be familiar with the American standard. Basically, a really quick way to identify which standard they operate on, how do they spell words like glamour and color? Color is an easier one. If there's a U in it, like C-O-L-O-U-R, it's British standard. If they don't have the U, it's American. Super easy way for that. But otherwise, just to talk with them. Um, if they're familiar but not that confident in it, then just try to... It's always best to find an editor who is native or super native fluent in your standard. So that's why that's there. If you're, if you're an American author talking to an American editor, this doesn't even apply. So that's why it's optional. Number five. What makes you an expert in this particular genre of writing? I didn't know how else to word this. That seems a little confrontational. But basically, like, think of it in a way as of like, okay, this is all great. So what makes you really confident and just an expert in this particular field or this particular genre or 
Like I said, like, let's say you have a book that involves voodoo and zombies and you ask me, so what makes you an expert in this particular genre of writing? Well, that's going to be a really fun conversation about how I accidentally and unintentionally spent three years studying the topic <laughs> as I was finishing my anthropology degree. And then we're, you know, and so am I an expert in that particular genre of writing? Hell yeah, I am. Did I intend to be? No. Am I still fascinated by it and very proud of this? Heck, uh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so see, that's why that question's there. Pretty easy. And it also kind of flags to tell you I'm not an expert in this particular genre. Then, okay, probably time to find a different editor who is. Number six, what were some things you observed in the sample I sent you? This is a question to test of did you read it? Um, now, when I contact people after they send me their inquiry forms and they send me their samples, I let them know right away there were some things I observed in the sample even before we have our consultation. I don't typically say what those things were, but I did. I do always want to indicate, yes, I did actually read it. Now, if they're like, well, I'm still going through it or I don't know, or they don't have an answer, they didn't read it. And you want somebody who took the mo took the time to read the sample you sent. Because you, you should send samples. Don't necessarily send the entire book. I have allowed my most recent clients to send the entire book because they've been actually quite short. So that's not been an issue at all. But if someone but I also only allowed that when I, I had initially asked, like, well, how long how many words is your manuscript? And the answer was less than like Actually, one answer was like, oh, it's only like, I don't know, 20 pages, maybe like 10,000 words. I'm like, yeah, okay, just send the whole thing because I have the time. Um, samples, though, please just send samples. And I even have a part in my inquiry form where you can just like copy paste it in there. It just gives me a feel for what style of voice that you have. Um, I recently read a sample. It was really cool. It's kind of like that uh, detective noir feel of narrative. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um but I still let him know that I observed a few things that we want to talk about. We're probably going to have to adjust and just to make it better, better than the great it already was. Things like that. But again, if they don't have an answer, that means they didn't read it. That means they didn't take the time to even read the first page. They should have. So do what you will with that information, but just keep in mind that if they haven't read it yet and it's been a hot minute, you know, maybe a day or two, I don't know. I just, there's just, I have questions. Because even if they were traveling or even if life happened, they still got the pain on their phone. They still could have opened it while they were in a commercial break or whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, they could have taken five minutes to look at it. So there's my thing. And here, here's my other thing. It sounds so gross, but it's real. If you have time to poop, you have time to read. <laughs> but it's true, though. Like, don't tell me you don't have time to read three pages of somebody's manuscript. If you have time to do your business, you have time to read the pages while doing it. Whatever you got to do to fit it in, you know, because and here's what it really comes down to. When it matters to you, you're going to find the time. And that's what it boils down to. It matters to me. So I'm going to find the time and make the time to read your work and give you observations so we can move forward. If they don't give the time, not even the five minutes that really more indicates it just doesn't matter to them. And you want somebody working with you who cares. Number seven, do you price your services per word? Do you offer packages? Most editors price per word. I do not. I hate math. <laughs> 
I hate math and I also hate nickel and diming people. I really do. I, I don't want to discourage anybody from working with me because they have a, a, a hundred thousand word novel. And I, you know, if I were to price per word on the industry standard, it'd be nine cents per word. Nine cents at a hundred thousand words is nine thousand dollars. On one hand, woohoo, kaching for me. But on the other hand, I'm much less likely to be able to work with any new aspiring authors because I don't know about you, but I don't have nine thousand dollars just laying around to throw towards anything. I don't even have $7,000 to, to throw towards the certificate I really want to get. You know what I mean? Like, do I have a, do I have a couple hundred bucks that I can invest over time? Yes, absolutely. Um, so you could throw into here, like, let's say they price per word and it is hefty. Then you ask them to do a payment plan. They should, they really should. If they say no, okay, that's fine. That's not like any indication that they're bad or anything like that, but that's, that's um, opportunity for you to be like, you know what? Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to have to, look elsewhere. Do make sure, and I didn't put this anywhere in the workbook, but I do want to tell you now, do make sure that you always give an honest upfront answer at the end of the consultation. Make your yeses yeses and your noes noes. The phrase, I have to think about it, is very irritating and, just, and actually makes you sound wishy-washy. It makes you sound less professional, makes you sound less dedicated to your work. Don't think about it. Now, what you can say, if you if you really genuinely need time to think about it, what you can say is like, I you, you know what? I love everything that we're talking about. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading the proposal and the, and the, uh, the contract. I'll be perfectly honest. I'm not quite sure I want to move forward right now at this time. But I do want to still review it. And if anything changes, I'll let you know and we can move forward. I'm okay with an answer like that. I'm, I actually far more appreciate from you a response of, I'm not sure. I'm really, there's a lot of uncertainty in here and I don't want to like mislead you in any way. I will always be receptive to that. Anytime someone tells me, I just have to think about it. I'm like, okay, so now I have questions. Just how serious are you about getting this done? But primarily you should tell them, yes, let's do this. I just got to figure out the financial aspect of, yes, let's do this. I'm going to read the contract. I'm going to talk it over with whoever I need to talk it over with. Get this signed. Meet the deadline. Here's the date. When we set out all the details or you tell me, you know what? This is great. I just realized that I just don't have the budget for this right now or I don't have the time for this right now, but I do want to revisit this when I'm ready to go. That's a great way to say no. Or maybe just tell me, you know what? I don't think we're a good fit. Also tell me that. I'm cool with that. Just don't say I need to think about it. Because what is there to think about this? You've been thinking about this. You wrote a whole book for Pete's sake. <laughs> um, so yeah, number seven is where that conversation will really come up. It really will. Because you're talking about money. Um, do you offer packages? Not everybody offers packages. Most Honestly, most editors don't. I'm one of the odd ducks who does. I just prefer to be part of your writing process. But I didn't want to become a book coach. I really do love editing. But coaching is a little bit different. Um... And they don't really edit. I'm an edit. I'm a. I'm an editor slash book slash coach. I do want to be there emotionally supportive for you. So I package it all together so we can work together from beginning to end, and then back to the beginning with the next book and all that. Um, now keep in mind that pricing for every editor, including myself, is per book. So if you pay a couple grand for a book with me, and then you write a second book, 
you gotta have, you're gonna have to pay the same amount for that book and every subsequent subsequent book. But hopefully by that point you've got enough revenue coming in that you can. You know, like it's not gonna be a dig into your expenses at all. It's just be part of your business expense at this point because you're a full time author. That's the goal. So that wraps up this page, the Q and A. Just just a again questions to help inspire you, but please ask your own. Please word this in a way that works best for you and just use this as a guideline, not necessarily rules. The final worksheet in here, but it's not the final page, it's just the final worksheet, is the contract checklist. And this is the one that I really, really want you to be the most strict on because this is the checklist and the contract is really what makes or breaks the legalities when or if you get into a sticky situation. Again, this is one that I have structure you can print off for every editor that you work you uh, work with or you, you interview so you can keep it organized and together and you don't have to reprint the entire workbook over and over. Save the trees. The Amazon rainforest is taking quite a blow. I'm very mad about that. So, <laughs> so save the trees. I even invested in an iPad just so I can save more on paper and keep all my files more organized and digitally edit. It's so, it's so fun. I love my iPad. I love my Apple Pencil. And yeah, know that when you work with me, you are helping me make more, make a bigger impact on the, on our ecology, on our environment. I don't like blast that everywhere, but it's true. When you work with me, you're working with somebody who's very eco-focused and you're making a wise decision towards the environment because I prefer working as digitally as possible. Of course, there's nothing as, as phenomenal as holding a physical copy of your book and, uh, you know, definitely you have it printed in paper, but I prefer to not have you print five copies of your 500 page novel just for editing. You mean like, that's why I'm all electronic. That's why I'm all, I even started journaling electronically. That's why I have this. I can write on the iPad, all that. Sorry, such an aside, but I'm like, this is, this is like things I do. So when you're looking at the contract, they need to have one, okay? If they don't have one, run for the hills. If you have to request one, walk quickly towards the hills. <laughs> Maybe not run, but walk quickly unless they stop and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, it's just an oversight. That's like, okay, fair, no problem. Humans are humans. Just, you know, questions about the organization. No issues, but anyways. This is a list of six things that absolutely have to be in there. They must be in there. If they are not, do not sign it. I even have a, a note here to remind you to never exchange money until after the contract has been reviewed and signed. Itemized list of services is something I mentioned earlier. Every contract, regardless of industry or service, should provide a specific list of everything the service provider promised to deliver. This ensures you know exactly what you're paying for and that you receive it. It also protects the service provider. It protects me and every other editor who has the itemized list of services. Because if you start asking me to do things that aren't on, aren't on that contract and you're not paying for them, I'm not going to do them. If you get mad at me for doing things that are not listed there, you have no grounds to get mad at me. Has this happened before? Yes. I, have, I actually very recently had to uh, smooth over a very ugly situation with someone who got very mad at me for not uh, fixing their transcriptions from Mandarin to English and making it all sound better than it was. 
here's the thing, that, that was nowhere in the contract. That was not at all what we discussed. And in academia, because this is a thesis that I was helping someone out, you know, edit and they were paying me. I'm not allowed to. That's illegal in academia. You're trans. She's like, well, I don't know how to translate from um, Chinese to English very well because I'm not a native English speaker. I'm like, that's on you. Like, if you need help with that, talk to your translator and pay them. But that was, I mean, I was much nicer in my explanation. I'm just being honest right now. That was nowhere in the contract. There was, that was nowhere in the scope of my work. So when she filed a formal complaint, this is on a different platform. It wasn't independently through my own. When she filed a formal complaint and tried to take her money back, I went right back in and I showed them all the documentation, reviewed the contract with the platform, like really pulled the heavy guns. I'm like, look, at no point was this ever on this list of things that I promised to deliver. And they agreed and they, and I got my money and they had to let her know, you can't do that. So that that's a two way street, you know, it's making sure that you know exactly what you're paying for and also ensuring that they deliver it. So let's say, let's say the contract did say that I am going to work on transcribing or translating Mandarin to English. If I didn't do that, then, then yes, she paid for something that she didn't receive. The contractor protects her. See how that works both ways. That's why this is so important to have the itemized list of services. Now, let's just say, and I do have this in my own proposal and contract. Let's say we sign the contract and then later on you're like, oh shoot, can you do this? Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about it. We'll either attach an appendix to the contract or just draft them a whole new one and, and cover that payment and cover, cover that and make sure it's all accounted for. I'm always open to adding on things, but you have to talk to me. You can't just expect me to do them and then and not pay for them. You know what I mean? Unless unless I offer. If I offer, that's on me. Okay. <laughs> Description of payment and payment plan options and stipulations. Another one we mentioned earlier. Be sure to discuss the payment options and the agreed upon plan, including the dates prior to the proposal, so it can be notated in the contract. Dates, amounts, and deductions should all be listed to ensure the accounting is accurate. I need and want to know what you need and want for your payment plan. If you want to pay all up front, woohoo, awesome, no arguments from me. If you need a payment plan, woohoo, awesome, no arguments from me. We just got to talk about it. I need to know dates. I need to know the amount. And I'm going to like make sure that we talk about it. Like I don't let the consultation end until we've talked about this, just so I can ensure that it's in the contract with the dates, with the amounts, if there's any uh, deals or deductions or anything like that, they should be listed in there. If it's something new or anything like that, like, hey, today only I'm giving you 30% off. That's never going to happen. But if it's, you know, it just make sure it's all listed. Um, so again, protecting you as much as it's protecting me, making sure that I don't overcharge you and making sure that you pay as agreed. Now, a really quick note on the payment thing too. On my contract that you'll notice, and on many, many other contracts, because there's a lot of people who use a similar structure, there is a very specific clause that you have to read. And I actually, I've had one or two people read it and then forget about it and then wonder why things stopped working. It specifically says, if you do not pay, I do not work. So let's say you paid your retainer or you, you paid your first payment. I get to work right away. Like I literally do. Day of, that money comes in, I start working because that's what I promised. 
But let's say your next payment doesn't go through and you take no measure to fix it. You do get an automated email. Like I do communicate with you like, hey, let's get this fixed. You'll no problem. It happens. Or maybe you know, if you know that you're going to be a little bit behind, you let me know. Oh my gosh, I'm so agreeable to that. Don't sweat it. It's, don't be afraid. Like literally I've been in that situation. I w- I'm here to help you. But let's say you just said, I'm not going to pay. Well, when a couple weeks go, like, well, actually, when a week goes by and you still haven't paid me and made no effort to fix the card or anything like that to pay me, I see it's working on your stuff. You're not paying for my time. And I don't have the time to spare doing free work. I really don't. I'm not saying that to be rude. I'm saying that, like, logistically. I'm working with a couple authors, I, and they are paying me. So I am giving priority to people who pay me. So I, and I say this because I did actually have somebody who, no hard feelings, I actually got most of the project finished, so it's not like they're hurting for anything, but they haven't paid their final portion. And I don't know if, you know, life happened, they did get the reminders, their communication was made, they still just haven't paid. And so I don't know if they're thinking that they're not going to pay until they receive the work or whatnot, but see, here's the thing, if that's what they're thinking, well, according to the contract that they did read and sign... That's not how this works. They have to pay me in order to receive the rest of the, uh, you know, the rest of my work, and in order for me to even keep working on it. That's why that's there in my contract. But also, again, it's to help you. Just remember, please pay your service provider, and just make sure you know the dates and all that. It's really just a protective. You don't. You would not want to do work and not get paid for it, right? Like you, you really wouldn't. Um, and then that's another reason why I just I'm me personally just don't like the brick and mortar situation anymore like working for somebody I don't like doing a couple weeks of work with no money in the account you know what I mean like I honestly feel like companies should the day you get hired should pay you something to help you through the first couple weeks they don't but whatever <laughs> but imagine though like how nice it would be if you did start a new job somewhere and they're like okay here's your new desk here's your handbook here's your onboarding materials and here's your first paycheck woohoo now that I'm working for myself, as much as everybody else in this field is, we want that, we demand that, we're not going to sell for less, you know, and, and that's fair. All right, that's my whole thing on that. <laughs> Termination cancellation policy. Life does happen. Sometimes we have to hit the pause button or in unforeseen circumstances, like let's say hospitalizations, family, death, you died, God forbid, but you know what I mean? Like something unexpected happened. Sometimes um, these things happen and you have to just put a hold on it or maybe we have to seize the process altogether. Ensure that you have in writing, in the contract, the service provider's policy for the scenario, especially in how it impacts the finances. So let's say, for example, for whatever reason, you have to cancel our contract and cancel working with me like cancel the services. My cancellation policy has a couple things in there. You have to let me know 30 days in advance before the next payment's supposed to come out just so I can make the arrangements in my own life and, and, and in, the, in the business as well as in the system so that next payment doesn't pull from you and I know that that's not coming in. If you tell me a week before your next payment's due that you have to cancel the contract, that payment's still going through. It has to. Like on a technical level, I can't stop it from processing. But on an also just consideration level, you're leaving me high and dry and I, I really can't do that. So you can absolutely cancel a week before the next payment comes out, but be aware and it's in the contract 
that you are still making that next payment. It will be your final payment and all future payments will not go through because I will go in and cancel, but you are paying that last one then and there. But if you're able to let me know in a month in advance, you know, that 30 days in advance, no problem. Thank you. Um, hope you're doing fine. We'll go ahead and just make the arrangements. This also means that you're not getting a refund. And I have a whole refund section in there. But really easy moment on the refunds for virtually every service provider. There is no refund. If you get a haircut, you can't get a refund. Don't ask for one. It's so rude. If you get hair color, if you get a massage, if you get a facial, if you, um, shoot, if you get your shoe fixed, um, all these different you know, service-based industries. Do not ask for a refund because you're not going to get one. If a business gives you a refund, they don't know how to run business. You are paying for that person's time. Emphasis on time. If you get a haircut or a hair color and you're not thrilled with it, sorry. I mean, you know, you should be thrilled with it if you're not, okay, and they're going to do their best to help make it right. But they already spent the time to even get to that point. You're paying for that time. Same thing with editing. If you work with somebody and they edit your book, and then let's just say they actually edit your book, and you ask for a refund, the answer is going to be no. I have that in my contract. If I work on your book, and I do work on your book, and you ask for a refund, my answer is going to be no. I'm not even going to apologize for it. The answer is no. You're paying me for the time I spent. And that happened with a person who got mad at me because I didn't translate Mandarin to English. <laughs> I hit back with, I spent a lot of time rushing this order because you didn't, she, she honestly did not give me a whole lot of time. She gave me like 24 hours to work on an entire two thesis chapters. And I did. I set aside a lot of things and a lot of my personal life to do this. So when she tried to take her money back, my answer was a hell no. I am not going to sacrifice all that time and energy and stress to stay up to 2 a.m. because you don't like what I did. And I was able to verify I did the work. I showed them everything. I had the original documents, the, the notated documents, the annotated documents, the updates, all the communications. The work was done. No refunds were issued. I got paid. That's that's that on refunds. And I'm saying this, and I am kind of getting hard on this. I do get salty on this because I have actually been scammed by clients before. Not in editing so much. I mean, there was that one who tried, did not succeed. But no, like in the salon industry, in other service-based industries, I've had people who I bent over backwards and rotated the universe for them and gave them exactly what they wanted. And at the very end, they're like, I changed my mind. I want a refund. No. <laughs> You're paying for the supplies, you're paying for the time, you're paying for my stress and my sanity. No. If anything, I'm taking that money and going to a therapist. You know? <laughs> so just be a considerate client and understand that. But also know that if you have to terminate the, the contract, if you have to cancel the contract, I'm not going to keep charging you as long as you, you're like, that's just not fair. I'm not going to charge you for work I'm not doing. You know what I mean? That's, that's where that hands in. All right, there's my rant on terminations, cancellations, and refunds. <laughs> Copyright agreement. This must be written into the contract to protect yourself from plagiarism, theft of intellectual property, and other ownership issues that may arise with less than ethical service providers. 
ensure that you own all the work done. This is a section that most people have questions about when they review my proposal and contract, primarily because the legal jargon does get confusing. So I'm more than happy to always break it down and walk through the word for word, focus on semantics and you know, all those things. My contract very clearly and in no uncertain legal terms states that you own all the work. Even if, and this is a very real thing that happens sometimes on one of the books I'm working on, even if I put in the margins, hey, I feel like a good statement like, and I put the statement in there, would, would work great here. Um, usually I prefer that you reword it for your own, but the one author I did this with recently, she's like, can I use the exact wording? Because I just love how you wrote it. I made sure to let her know, even in that message back, yes, and it's still your work. So even though I'm the one who wrote that sentence, my contract clearly states that she owns that sentence now. Also, that message is legal writing. Like once it's in writing, even on Messenger, emails, anything like that, if it's in writing, it's legally uh, submissible in court. So I legally handed over that sentence to her ownership. That's what that does. It is separate from the confidentiality agreement, but, it's still, but the confidentiality agreement still operates on a similar level. This is another section that protects your intellectual property. This time, everything not related to your manuscript directly, more talking about your payment information, your business strategies, et cetera, et cetera. I am not going to blast your card number on, on Facebook or Instagram. I actually, to be honest, when you pay through my platform, I don't even know what your card number is. It is so encrypted and so secure. I have no idea what any of your personal banking information is. You just pay me and that's all I know. And that's really all I care about. I don't, I don't need to know anything else. Uh, what I do, um, career counseling on a different level, again, on a side, cause I love helping people. I'm just here to help people. I really do. I do get their card information, but I never record it. And once it's in the system and I hit enter and it goes in, I never see it again. I never write it down anywhere else. I have no idea what any of the CVV codes are. You know what I mean? Like, I make sure that I have nothing on that. Even though, like, let's say you emailed me your credit card information. Please don't ever do that. Please don't ever email anybody your banking or credit card information. Just don't. But even if you did, <laughs> um, I have absolutely no legal right to share it with anybody. I have no legal right to tell anybody you bank with Chase or you bank with PNC or anybody. I, it's there in the confidentiality. Let's say you share with me a really neat strategy you have for marketing your book. I have no legal right to share that with anybody at all. Now, the confidentiality agreement also protects your book and it ensures that your editor doesn't prematurely publish any vital information regarding the content. What this means is you are absolutely totally free and at the liberty to um, make Instagram posts or social media, other social media posts, sharing like your favorite quote from the book or information about your characters. Cause it's your book. It's your property. I do not have that permission. The confidentiality agreement means that the most I ever have the permission about talking about your book in particular is whatever your elevator pitch is, whatever your little brief blurb is the summary that you gave me in the initial email before we even talked. That's all I'm able to legally share. It gives nothing away about the book. It just gives the thematic elements. And I do need to share this. I need to share this with my cover designer because he kind of needs to know what he's designing. Okay. He doesn't want to design a uh, 
happy-go-lucky, travel-the-world cover for a horror novel. You know what I mean? Like, he needs to know. But still, I am not going to share any quotes, any character information, anything like that. Just thematic elements and anything that you would freely share without a confidentiality agreement. If that doesn't, if you have more questions, if that doesn't make sense, if you're a little confused, because I know that could be a little confusing, do feel free to email me or do feel free to message me on Instagram at Nikki Aubrakit. I'm more than happy to go over this, but you know, it, it should be pretty cut and dry there. Um, the last one on this list is applicable law. This is just as vital as everything else because this is a very tiny segment at the end of every contract, no matter what industry is in or whatever contract, even if it's like a financial contract for like a bank or whatnot, applicable law is always going to be towards the end near the signatures. This specifies exactly who governs over the enforcement of the contract should issues arise. Be aware that should you need to pursue legal action, Filings will most likely have to occur in the service provider state as notated under the applicable law statement. So if you're about to sign my contract, you'll see that applicable law is first of all clearly delineated and clearly indicated. But also it identifies that this contract is governed and enforced by the state of Illinois and the United States of America. What that means is if you hate me for some reason and you want to sue me, you have to file in the state of Illinois. Now, in the year 2021, where the digital age is definitely booming because of 2020, um, you should be able to do that electronically. So let's say you live in Florida and you hate me, you want to sue me. You can probably file your suit online, but it's still going to be in the state of Illinois' websites under in their platforms. You cannot file a suit against me in the state of Florida because it doesn't govern the contract. So, and there might be laws in Florida that are different than the laws of Illinois when it comes to business operations or even like the editing practice. The editing practice, I'm not entirely sure if there's any differentiation there, but there typically is when it comes to business operations, especially with service providers who operate virtually and without a brick and mortar presence. Um, I've actually had, (laughs) I've actually run into this myself years and years and years ago. I used to live in Spokane, Washington for all of like, what, six months? Years later, um, I was hounded by a collections agency for an apartment building I never lived in. I'm like, what? So, so when I was, and they kept hounding me, and I did all the legal things to be like, stop, this isn't mine. And they violated the terms because there are some uh, fair credit reporting terms that they have to abide by, and they violated them. I wanted to pursue them for damages because at that point, now they owed me more than what they're trying to make me pay them. But when I went in to go file, I asked, you know, I got legal advice. I'm like, okay, how do I do this? I said, well, you have to file in the state of Washington. Like, okay. And I said, that means that probably when it goes to court, you have to physically be there and travel out there. Now, for me at that point, it made no sense to file because I would literally spend all the money to just be there to get money back that would not amount to the cost of me traveling. You see how that kind of like, it really does make you kind of wonder, like, is it worth even pursuing? That's why applicable, that's another reason why I should say applicable law is so important. It identifies to you not only, okay, which state is kind of overseeing this, but also, do I really want to fly out to Illinois to pursue my hatred of Nikki? <laughs> and I say that because I'm not going to screw you over. I promise. 
I'm a volunteer of the United Nations for Pete's sake. I got a lot to lose if I screw you over. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose my life or my career. I care. Um, and I, I'm, my gosh, I'm spending a long time this morning. It's a Friday morning at the end of August. I'm spending a lot of time to help protect you. If you're trying to sue me, it's because you, for some unknown reason, hate me. <laughs> but you'll like, let's say someone does actually screw you over despite everything. This is just something to know. Now, let's say someone in Wisconsin screws me over and I really want to pursue them for damages um, because it was horrendously damaging. Wisconsin's close enough. I will hop on that train or I will I will fly up there because it's not that far. You know, I will get a train. I'll go whatever I need to. I will rent a car if I have to. It's close enough. But if somebody in Hawaii screws me over, tempting because it's Hawaii and, you know, vacation. But you know what I mean? Like the flight ticket just to get there would not, to me, justify the pursual of somebody, you know, unless it was bad enough. Now, have I been in a situation where it was bad enough that travel didn't matter? Yes. Did the pandemic make me go, fine, whatever, I'll let it go? Also, yes. <laughs> you know, at that point, I'm like, you know what? I feel like their personal life is screwed over enough and I'm actually doing fantastic. So, but there was a point a couple years ago where damage was done to me so horrifically and so horrendously, it cost me everything. I lost everything. Not in editing, not in, you know, I feel like that, but in another industry that I was in, um, I was like well on my way of owning my own business. I was very successful. I was making a grand a week. Like it was amazing. I was doing very well and something happened and I had, I had enough to support my case. And enough to support, hey, this is not okay. And here's what this cost me. And yeah, and, and so when I moved, um, I was looking at travel expenses as well. But like, no, it is absolutely worth it to me to travel as frequently and to pay for the attorney and do all this because this, it, it, it was that bad. You know what I mean? But again, the pandemic happened and you know the, the things I was learning about like how things were going and also just like, on their end, kind of hearing through the grapevine, like their struggles. I'm like, you know what? I'm actually doing just organically doing way better than they, they are. I kind of felt bad. I really did. I genuinely felt bad for them. That's like the compassionate, merciful side of me coming out going, even though it was absolutely worth it to pursue, to restore myself, I ended up restoring myself in a completely different direction. And they're actually like, I don't know, karma just kind of happens. So I'm like, I dropped it. I really did. But that's, again, where applicable law would come into place. Like, had this happened and I was still in a different state? Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, you think about those things. And, and yeah, and, and really that experience is another reason why I'm taking the time and effort and energy to create this workbook and this podcast episode to help you protect yourself. I've been in those shoes. A lot of different, I really wanted to give you a lot of those examples, even outside the scope of editing, to also help you just in everything else. This is something that just exists universally. Always make sure applicable law is clearly stated and you are aware of what that includes. That is it for the contract checklist. I have little boxes next to each. If you go through it and if you go through the original proposal and contract sent to you and any one of these is missing, don't sign anything, don't pay anything, but do like message or email your service provider or potential service provider back asking about these like, hey, where's the copyright agreement? Maybe I overlooked it. Like, you know, do it nicely. 
Um, but make sure, and actually I say that because I actually do have the copyright agreement in and I still had people ask me, where's the copyright agreement? Where does it say that I own this? I'm like, it's section six right here. I have no problems answering it, but, but I have it in there. So that's why I have no problems answering. That just tells me you probably just skimmed through. If you approach it that way, they're going to have to go through it and be like, oh, I forgot to put that in there. They'll put that in there. If they refuse to put any of these six things in there, don't sign it and go somewhere else. Put your foot down on that end. If they outright refuse, I don't want to do a, I don't have applicable law. I don't have a confidentiality. I don't have a termination cancellation policy. Then don't sign. That's just, it's open. That's way too many doors open to screw yourselves, to, for you to screw yourself over by signing. And this concludes part two of the Wordsmith Workbook Walkthrough, the three-part mini-series um, or mini-course, as you want to call it. Tune in next week for the last episode of this mini-course, and we'll be wrapping up with the tail end of the workbook. So feel free to read ahead, um, and we'll do a walkthrough on that. And if you have any questions in the meantime, do feel free to drop me a DM on Instagram at Nikki Auberkit. Or you can email me at Nikki at NikkiAuburnTicket.com. As always, I'll put the info into the episode notes on the page. And I look forward to meeting you if you're in that space where you need an editor and you're ready to put me to the test. You've been listening to The Writer's Workshop. If you want to learn more about developing your craft or you're ready for an editor to take a look at your manuscript, head on over to NikkiAuberkit.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram as well for more tips, tricks, and inspiration. And as always, keep on writing.